Resporting. This is podcast number four. I'm Jen Saderhelm. With me is Brent Ford, and we've got Eddie in with us as well today. Eddie Williams, who will be providing some AFL news, but I suspect there's going to be a lot more attention focused on the NRL today. Hello, and welcome to the program, Brent. How are you? Yeah, good evening, Jen. I'm good. Good, Ed. How are you? Yeah, all right, Jen. So, as of a couple of hours ago, it's official, and I dare say that I pretty much thought that the NRL was going to push ahead irrespective. We are going to see a May 28 resumption of the NRL. A lot's happened in the last week. All of a sudden, Todd Greenberg was dumped. Did either of you see that coming? I sort of saw it coming. I think the warlords here at the uh, the NRL clubs were sort of pushing for it. It's sort of been the beating of drums for a period of time. I don't really know why that was the case. I mean, you look at some of the, the spreadsheets that have been thrown up on, on social media, revenue's up, TV revenue is up, a few other things are, are going really well, merchandise is selling really well, but all it takes is one op-ed in the Daily Telegraph of $500,000 being spent a day but there was no real detail on what that $500,000 was being spent on or whether it was being spent in a good manner or not. But that seemed to be one of the the frustrations. I think probably the thing that really made Todd fall on the, the sword in the end was the fact that he couldn't give the New Zealand Warriors sort of any confidence about when they needed to return to Australia if they wanted to be part of the competition. That was the detail that sort of came out in the media. There was then a conference call between, I think, the... CEO of the the Warriors and also Vlandis and Greenberg. I think from there that was when his uh, cards were written and he was sort of decided that he would step down. But some of the stuff that's come out since then, I think the photo of of him in his house enjoying a a drink is is far and beyond what's called for in this day and times. I think whoever took that photo should take a, a serious look at themselves and think about, you know, this is a man in his private home. He's no longer the CEO of the the NRL. So it just didn't make sense to me to to go that far. But I think it was something that was coming for quite a period of time, especially when you look at what was going on with Channel 9 as well. And Well, see, that's where I was coming from. I thought it was not so much what you said about the Warriors and whatever. It was back to where we discussed a couple of weeks ago about Channel 9 not feeling like Greenberg had told them. And so basically in the discussions they've had with Vlandis about getting the code up and running, because they've said that Greenberg was the one keeping them out of it and they should be part of it because of all the money they've got invested, yada, yada, that Greenberg kind of became the fall guy for that reason. I mean, that's obviously allegedly from my position, but that's kind of how I saw it. Yeah, that's it, right I, I mean, that's sort of part of it as well, but part of me also feels that Peter Volandis wants to be this all-conquering leader of the NRL and have sort of a mm. CEO, chairman-style power play and sort of have a, a real iron fist ruling sort of in the way that he he led racing New South Wales and some of the changes that he made there he'd be able to bring his own ideas to the the fore we might see more magic rounds for all we know <laughs> yeah. I mean he he loved the the championships and the idea that what he brought to racing there so really good crowds come to to racing in New South Wales so he can be positive in the in the fact that while he said rugby league Peter Volandis might actually have some idea of what he's doing behind the scenes yeah all right We'll wait and see. There's been lots of names tossed around as to who might take on their CEO role. Would if... you want to take it? Well, that's, that's the... what I was going to say. Yeah, especially at the moment. No. Yeah, well, we've heard people like Blake Solly, Dave Donahue and Ferner. Ferner's in the mix, although he's resoundingly said, no, I've got stuff still to do at Canberra, which I think is right. Yep. One thing for me is that I'd feel really uncomfortable to have anyone who's the head of one club in particular coming on as CEO of NRL just from that potentially not impartial I mean I know they're never going to be impartial every player's got a team that every person has a team that they go for the most and then we've got the Accord chief Simon McGrath who's basically said he's not interested as well and of course we what happened to Phil Gould I was about to say (laughs) um, everyone's favorite Phil Gould is in the mix too so I don't know surely not there is one name that has not been mentioned though Jen, say to him. Are you interested, Jen? I wanted it when Greenberg got the job and they didn't consider me. I can't think why not. But, I mean, I'd be ideal, to be honest. 
How would, how would you run? Would you bring back the bears? Would you bring back? <laughs> that's your, the, the number one agenda. Forget the, the TV well, deal. We bring do back need the bears. Even numbers if the Warriors come late this year. Maybe the, they get based in North Sydney and have to play in North Sydney Bears jerseys. <laughs> Everyone. <laughs> Both sides. It's going to be very confusing. But oh, it was a long silence on that one. I'll just give you a couple of weeks to think on the idea while I plan my overthrow of Andrew Abdo. Let us know if you need some tips with your CV, Jen, or, you know, practice well, parts of you. Probably will need some personal references. Yes. But all of a sudden, all these names have popped out. I love today when they announced this result. They were like, and ARL Commissioner Wayne Pierce. I did not know that Wayne Pierce was ARL. Okay, no, I'm- I only I only found this out after reading that he was the mm. AR. Yeah, I had no idea. Well, until I thought, hang on, recent. why are they asking Wayne Pierce if the footy is on or not? <laughs> I thought it was going to be one of those, they'd wheel out Benny Elias and he's somehow got something else and then they'd wheel out Steve, Steve Brock. Yeah, like they just, they love to go to the old Tigers. It's sort of like, oh, tell us about why you hate the Raiders or like, why do they always get comment from Benny Elias or whatever? Like, I think it was when Josh Hodgson was doing something. They asked Benny Elias, of all people, why? Why didn't they ask Alan Tung? Yeah, like why did, or why didn't they ask former Raiders hooker Simon Wolford? Maybe he's in England, but I mean, aside. <laughs> Aside from that, it just it just doesn't make. They should have asked Jen. It just, yeah, <laughs> I know I have I know. opinions. Why don't they? Why don't they do that more often? It just doesn't make any sense. But oh dear. Yeah. But anyway, yes, that was a bit of a surprise to me when I was reading about ARL Commissioner Wayne Pierce announcing the dates, and I, that whole sentence just was so unexpected as well that I went, all right, then I need to now find out what Wayne Pierce has been doing besides producing rather talented offspring. Anyway, and then I love it. He's, he's talking Project Apollo, playing in a bubble. All this stuff is coming out of his mouth and I'm like, I'm asleep. I've walked into an alternate reality and, yes, I'm really excited that it's starting, but it has felt very surreal. It has, and I'm taking part at the moment in this 5K challenge that the Raiders green room is doing at the moment. So you've got to run 5Ks and some of the players are on board. I'm a bit (laughs) concerned about Josh Papali's fitness at the moment. (laughs) Oh, Um, dear. But, I mean, outside of that, I think one of the things that they haven't considered, there was a good article during the week talking about ankle injuries and Achilles injuries there was I think a number of Achilles injuries after an NFL lockdown so the NFL went into a lockdown they didn't play any games they came back and someone was trying to impress the Detroit Lions and and they ended up doing an Achilles injury Mm. and so what I don't know what the the connection really is it was you're going from this sort of high intensity training and then you take a little bit of time off and I guarantee the there's no way the players would have been training as hard as they could have under the certain guidance that they would have if they were still at clubs. And I know players are going for runs and that's fine, but it doesn't really replicate the weekend week out of, of football. So my major concern is, is this May 4 to May 28, the 24 days or whatever that they're going to give them, is it enough time to get back to being fit enough to resume the season? Well, this will be interesting to see if some teams are a bit more competitive than the others on the um, getting up to shape. And the skills as well, because yeah. you're going to be rusty because you haven't had the teammates there to be practising just the simple things like the passing. And you've got to think about, aside like the Roosters, they've now got 15 rounds to sort of, I know two games back isn't really a massive thorn in their side, but they've got sort of the two games to make up already. I'm so glad. They <laughs> no one's complaining. No, no, no one's complaining. No, no not one a- is, except for their CEO. Anyway, yeah. also this week it's been announced that the New South Wales Rugby League, the Community Rugby League, is slated to return from July 18, which they'll have a revised look at that in June, but that's still also good news, which I think is a good time to bring us to how the AFL is looking in this week as well while we're talking about some of the community areas. So, Eddie, over to you. Well, I guess if the NRL's got Project Apollo, it still seems like the AFL is maybe on Project Hubble because they're still considering the (laughs) idea of these quarantine hubs, which is seeming like it might be less likely than perhaps when we talked last week. Although Patrick Dangerfield, who is the players rep on the AFL Players Association, who'd initially been pretty cool on the idea, is starting to warm to it. So if, if the AFL can come up with some details and a plan, maybe we see some hubs where games are played. And then we've had the off-field distraction over the past week, Brent, with 
Lockie Hunter, Clay Smith, the Western Bulldogs finding themselves in the headlines for the wrong reasons. I really don't understand why players who are in this situation, I get that lockdown is a thing, but I don't see people that have lost their jobs going out and drink driving, crashing Crashing into into parked cars. yeah, Yeah, I think one of the stories that came out was that he'd had a dispute with the missus, went to go drinking with a friend... Whether that's the case or not, it still doesn't excuse that you're the vice captain of a football club and there are other ways to deal with an emotional episode, I suppose, than going for a drink and then choosing to get into your car. Like, There's a reason people have placed you in that level at your football club and they should feel let down by the fact that you then made that decision whether or not this would have happened, whether we were in ISO Mm. or not. It doesn't excuse the fact that you shouldn't have done it in the first place. But this isn't regular behaviour. And I think that this sort of... I know being in a country town myself or playing in a country town football team, there are people... And you have to have that tough conversation sometimes with people. And there would be times where we'd go to the pub and players would want to try and, and drive home. And you'd have to have that conversation with them and say, no, you're leaving your, your car there. We're going to then drive you home and you can come pick it up tomorrow because you don't want to have that conversation of someone knocking on your door and saying that your teammate has, has passed away. So you've got to really think about the consequences. Well, I mean, I've heard stories of some local footy clubs where after a night at the pub, they then camp at the yeah. local ground rather <laughs> yeah, than driving home. It's called the Raiders bus. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and it's come up from time to time. AFL players in the past have been done drink driving and often it's caused a, clearly it causes a problem, a safety, massive safety problem. You potentially kill someone, right? And we've often had the TAC, which is sort of the Victorian Transport Accident Commission sponsoring different clubs or sponsoring the league with a, a very clear driver safety. Yeah. Don't drink. If you drink or drive, you're a bloody idiot. Used to be one of their slogans. They often then either sanction the club that they were sponsoring or they pull the sponsorship altogether because of some of these issues. Look, he's not the first player well, to drink drive. He probably won't be the last, unfortunately, but you would think that it's a pretty simple thing to control of all the issues facing. You just got to think you're in, a, you're in a very privileged situation. Yeah. So a player who's on $500,000, say they lose 20% of their salary, they're still on $400,000. That is a ridiculous amount of money. And this is probably uprooting some of the core issues that are at the, the bottom of the AFL that you perhaps don't see... We saw the Ben Cousins documentary and Mm. him talking about he might not have a beer or he might not do drugs or whatever for a month. But then at the end of that month, he knew what was going to come and he was just going to get on as many drugs as possible. And maybe this is what's happening with AFL football. It's not saying that they're doing drugs or that, but you are so finely tuned throughout a season where you don't really drink. And I think the Raiders make a, a good look at this in the NRL is that I think you see them after a game. Every player's got a beer. And so they're not, yeah, sanitising them. But this is actually an interesting point that I would like to discuss in more detail. Coming back to what you said about taking the picture of Todd Greenberg, and I don't know if you remember, but when Smith was, Steve Smith was sacked from the captaincy Mm. role, someone took a picture of him in a pub sitting by himself having a beer and was just saying how pathetic he was sitting in a pub by himself having a beer, which any human being is entitled to do. He wasn't doing anything wrong. So he was in the US, I think, for him. He was in New York. and, And, you know, there he was. Having a beer, and he was on his own, but, you know, he can't really do that in Australia. He's too well known, right? He goes yeah. sits at the own, on his own at the pub. He won't be on his own for very long. Yeah. He's in New York, probably enjoying the anonymity. And, yeah, someone was saying, oh, it's a bit strange, Steve Smith having a beer on his own. I think he's probably had much bigger issues to deal with than whether yeah. or not he was drinking But what's beer. next? People taking a photo when you go to the movies by yourself with but your big bag of popcorn. Also, I also feel like that when people, when players do go out and just want to have a beer with a mate at the pub, they have every right to do it without us having to analyse or watch over them as to how many beers they have. So it's a really difficult... Alcohol and any sport is a difficult issue at the moment. Well, there was a period of time there was a, a certain Raiders player who was on the injured list and mm. they were having a well I thought they were on the injured list and I hadn't known that prior a couple of hours earlier that they'd been taken off the injury list and I was like oh this player they shouldn't be drinking this is against like the club protocols and they were there drinking with a couple of the other players they weren't of course like drinking a, a large amount like it might have been one or two but it was just funny how I had no 
right to to question that player at all but it's still in my head as a, a journal, as a as a journalist as well as like well why is this player who's on the injured list drinking and then yeah i'd look back and it was all above board because they'd been cleared hours earlier and they were named that weekend they scored two tries so it really shut me up that was for sure <laughs> and we've digressed but it is something that i do want to come back to because it is weird ground with players to have any alcohol and we all have i think it's it's it. it's weird as well like you encounter a player on the on the street sometimes and you you've got to take a step back and realize that they're just living their life yeah. as well i've seen emre gula walking his dog a couple of times and I just say good day and then you just sort of go on with it like, like david pocock at the multi cultural festival once yeah, yeah. and i nearly yeah. ran steve smith down with my car but you know we all try and remain really normal <laughs> all because insane. he had a beer on his own jen you gotta <laughs> leave the man alone can you imagine what would have happened if you ran I steve know. smith down oh my god was it pre or post sandpaper it was pre sandpaper mm. and australian was, history could have been you would different. have been i reckon jail for at least oh, 20 I would have years done. so this was at monica he was you coming didn't mean to do it though no it i didn't i was just i was way too excited he was walking Wait darren lehman was in front and he was Smith was carrying the bags like he was dragging two cricket bags while Lehman was talking to someone who was like the lackey. And I was watching this unfold as we were driving to the ground. And then I realised that the lackey was Steve Smith, had my son in the backseat of the car, turned to the son and like, oh, you can imagine. And I was like, this is Steve. Oh, my God, it's Steve Smith. And because I wasn't then looking at the road, I kind of mounted the pavement. So <laughs> oh, Somewhat. Fortunately, didn't harm anyone, but let's just say Smith looked at me quite alarmed and hopefully hasn't got my names burned on his eyeballs for posterity. Good moment. Imagine you go to get his autograph one day and he's like, you tried to run me over. (laughs) One of those dodgy bookmakers trying to get you to run him down. They'd had a large bet on the opposition. Not my finest moment. My (laughs) son actually. to take over as captain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or CEO. She's plotting. Anyway, back to AFL. Moving on. I was actually going to say in a roundabout way, this discussion of drinking and cricket probably takes me to my number two number two sporting moment Ooh. if we can skip ahead slightly yeah. drinking um, and cricket well in a roundabout way i'm taking us back to the year 2010 i'm taking us up to the gabba it's day one of the ashes series and peter siddle <gasps> has he's got, got a hat trick on his, on his oh, birthday oh, he's got him right. he's got him and then mark nicholas really annoyingly goes not yet he hasn't not yet he hasn't because they were going for the review Again. and he spoiled the moment but what a great moment peter siddle Three good wickets, Matt Pryor in the middle, ended with Stuart Broad bang out LBW on his birthday, opening day of an Ashes series, which interestingly, Australia went on to win that match but lost the series 3-1 in 2010, so not their best performance. But Peter Siddle, I've got to say, one of my personal favourite athletes, I feel he's really gotten everything out of himself, worked really hard, obviously, with the ball, beat the bat more often than anyone else without getting an edge, had edges not go to hand, often bowled without luck, and on that day... The luck went his way, edged behind, bowled, and then LBW. The LBW wasn't necessarily the ball he was trying to bowl, but gee whiz, he'll take it. Uh, And the DRS confirmed that Peter Siddle had a hat-trick on his birthday. The reason I bring up the alcohol issue Mm. is that recently Peter Siddle was on a podcast with Narrowly Meadows where sports people talk about personal issues that they've faced and resilience. And at that time, around 2010, Peter Siddle was battling major issues with alcohol himself, probably not during a series or during a match, but in the off-season certainly, going out on the weekend, midweek, going on big benders, ending up coming home, you know, having driven himself and not remembering not remembering the trip home, not remembering large swathes of the night before. Since then, turned his life around with the help of his family, his partner, his friends, Cricket Australia. Did a pre-season with North Melbourne, has become that super professional athlete. We know about his veganism, we know about all the bananas um, (laughs) and one of the great role models in Australian cricket. But back then, in the midst of all that challenge, that he was able to come up with a hat-trick Got his birthday at the Gabba. I remember watching it. It must have been late in the day because mum and I were watching. I think she had an apron on because she was making dinner or something. One of the great sporting moments, I reckon, and one of the great characters of Australian sport, Peter Siddle. Isn't he just? I love all the backstory to that because he's copped a ribbing for the veganism for some time. It was a big topic of every conversation that you had. And BBL 09, this last BBL, was the BBL of Siddle's life. Wasn't he outstanding? Like every game he was in, if he wasn't batting, he was bowling really well and he was in everything and just pulled off some amazing catches. He was so- This is the thing. So originally we thought of Peter Siddle as a test player, right? Didn't play much one day or T20 cricket for Australia. But towards the back end of his career, 
gave himself the skills to be a really good T20 bowler, particularly of the past few seasons with the Adelaide Strikers. Still wants to play on at domestic level, perhaps not with Victoria next season, but interest from other states, which maybe lets you know a bit more about. But yeah, worked really hard with the bat, has a first-class 100 that I think he made for Australia A against Ireland, even though he's not the most gifted batter. Has batted really well for Australia, you know, after some collapses or helped. There was that match over in South Africa where they looked mm. like they were going to be bowled out for 12 and Siddle, <laughs> Siddle and Nathan Lyon managed to put on a, you know, a partnership to at least get them beyond 40 or whatever it was at the time. One of the great battler, great character of Australian sport, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. I also think he's going to be a commentator in the future and a good commentator in the future. I think so as well. I just go back to his veganism and I don't really understand the, the You're fascination. You're going to break in and take a photo of him eating a banana. Well, this is the whole thing. I don't really get the fascination with what other people eat. Like, I like yeah. to share food that I eat, but I don't understand don't the judge whole. judge people. For yeah, what they I don't eat. understand yeah. the whole criticism. I feel like there is this really social aspect of being able to share food and, and talk about it and eat it. Mm. But if you don't enjoy something, it was like, who, well, who was it recently? I think it was Tom Hanks had a lot of Vegemite on his toast did, and yes. people were like, ah, oh, there's too much Vegemite. Like, who are you to say how much Vegemite that Tom Hanks could have on his toast? <laughs> if, if he wants to have that much, and I, I would say that that's how much I would have on my toast as well. Yeah, me too, actually. I'm an excessive Vegemite. And it's like, well... You don't have to eat it. This is the whole thing. You don't have to eat 16 bananas or whatever before you get a hat trick on your birthday. It was almost like we thought it was going to make him less of a man. That's exactly the thing. And and I think the hat trick was pre-veganism. But since then, he's become a vegan with his partner has stopped drinking altogether and he sort of commented oh after if we win the ashes you know I'll, I'll have a beer with the boys and they'd won the ashes and everyone was having a beer and he said actually I think I'll probably be okay. I can relate. I can absolutely relate. Like I went through a period where I didn't drink for a year. I dislocated my shoulder and thought that that would be the best thing for recovery. And it got to the end of it and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go on this week bender. I'm going to have a beer every day. I'm going to try all this craft beer. And it got to January 1 and I was allowed to have a beer and I just thought, I don't really yeah. know if I like beer. It was a bit like the Canadian club ad. I don't know if I want it. I don't. It was It was very strange. We sort of grow up and it's like, oh, have a beer. It's oh, ingrained. you can have a beer and it's really ingrained. And I just felt I didn't really need it. Eventually, I've had times where I think grand final day, West Coast Collingwood yeah. may have been one of those days where I got a little bit loose. But Everyone has those days. But and I yeah, guess there's was, a lesson here from yeah. Peter Siddle for someone like Lockie Hunter that they can turn things around yeah. and we shouldn't be... Maybe we have been quick to judge Lockie Hunter for his drink driving incident, but there's no reason why he can't. I don't think you judge someone as an You judge the act, I guess you judge say, well, the this act, act clearly yeah, you is judge wrong, the act. but that doesn't mean he can't turn and things around. And I'm a around. massive believer in people having second chances and being able to, to turn it around. So I think someone like Lockie Hunter... They've now got an opportunity, especially in in isolation, probably to to think about what they've done and then come out when the AFL eventually does resume and repay the faith when they get a chance in their teammates. I'm going to post the picture of you and I again having a drink in the newsroom because that's what it looked like, but we actually took that picture in dry July and both of us were drinking water from... What do you call those things? Oh, flask. Flask. But it was <laughs> yeah. Home. So that was taken in terms of where you would have a sneaky drink if you were yeah. If you were someone that desperately wanted to have a drink, where would you sneak a drink throughout the day? You know, have a little nip in the the news booth because as a newsreader, no one actually knows what you would be doing in there. You you read the news. Yeah, but, we can tell when you start reading though, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but <laughs> but that was part of the inspired by you having your year off alcohol. I did yeah. dry July, and we enjoyed a whole month at work where I would bring in different normally <laughs> alcohol vessels and drink water from them throughout the day. We have to take a break, Eddie. If you are happy to, please stay with us, sure. and you can meet Letsy via the telephone while we talk some <laughs> cricket and share a couple more of our top two moments of sports. So we've done. NRL, we've done a little bit of AFL, off to cricket next, and then Brent's, mine and Letty's top two sporting moment of all time. Resporting, and we're going to do this in a whole new style. We're all going to be here for the final session with Letty today. Letty, how are you? Fantastic. All things considered, there's a lot happening. 
Yeah, there is a lot happening and we've been proven right that the NRL is going to plough on with their resumption date. However, Cricket's also come out with some big news this week about, first of all, staff cuts for one thing and trying to get their own new dates sorted out. So what's been happening on the cricket scene? Essentially, 80% of Cricket Australia's full-time staff have been kind of stood down with only 20% of their pay which uh, for the final two months of the financial year. But honestly, like it's after July there is quite a possibility there might be some redundancies, especially if this COVID-19 stuff continues. And also, Justin Langer and Matthew Mott are actually some of the people, part of Cricket Australia, who have actually had their hours cut. So it's affecting people at all levels, isn't it? Just on the cuts, this is the thing that always gets me. So being an ignorant football person who only sort of follows cricket in the summer, it sort of amazes me that... Um, Cricket Australia would ask the staff to take this sort of length of a pay cut because for me, there isn't a whole lot of cricket going. Surely there would be a tour and something overseas. But in terms of staff, what would they actually be doing at the moment? I think they have a lot of sort of admin style staff and like local staff sort of in the community as well. But it is interesting because CEO... Kevin Roberts, he's actually reached out to the Woolworths CEO about <laughs> getting Cricket Australia employees who have lost hours in stacking shelves and doing stuff like that with but Woolworths. This is, this is the whole thing, though. Like, that wouldn't surprise me because, I mean, who could live off 20% of their, their regular salary? And it's not like you could apply for new stuff because you're still in a job and the job keeper might apply. No, um, it actually doesn't apply because Cricket Australia haven't lost enough revenue for that. So, so again, this is a strange thing. If they haven't lost enough revenue, why are they doing all this? I guess at least Mitch Stark will reach the top shelf. (laughs) 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 And there is the line of the night. We cannot do better than that one. (laughs) Can you imagine him and Alyssa Healy working in worse together? to Siddle. Let's see Eddie's moment with Siddle's hat trick and you could have Siddle on the bananas. <laughs> Perfect. Surely you'd have yeah. to. You'd have to be worried that he might grab a couple while he's working. Have the kiddies one. Banana. Doesn't he eat like 16 or something before he plays? Something astronomical. Yeah. Love that potassium. <laughs> right. Now moving back to other things in there also. So we're looking towards summer now in India. What's Cricket Australia saying about what we're looking at towards resumption of our tests? Everyone's coming up with creative scenarios about the World Cup, as well as the series this summer against India. Now, the latest theory that Cricket Australia are putting, I guess, to the forefront is having all four tests of the series in Adelaide at the Adelaide Oval, because they're actually building a hotel right near the Adelaide Oval, which I didn't actually know, which they would be able to put all the players up in. So how would you guys feel? Like a whole... Not a whole test summer because there apparently is another test against Afghanistan, which unfortunately, if it is in Adelaide, that probably won't go ahead because that's another lot of players from a different country who would be coming into Australia if the travel bans are still in place. But how would you guys feel if all of an Indian Australia test series were staged at the Adelaide Oval? Yeah, I'd be fine. I no. think if that's what it takes for it to go ahead, but you you, you don't like it, Brent. You lose, no. use that flavour because, you know, the whacker's bouncy, the gabber's bouncy, the SCG spins, you know, the MCG isn't very good, Adelaide Oval's good for batting. <laughs> Is every match going to end up just being the same? You're just going to have four roads. You're going to have four tests of roads. The Adelaide Oval tests are boring. I reckon at least <laughs> what if bring they in did pink ball at least, tests, Brent. At least bring yeah, in. Yeah, how many maybe do you have pink don't ball? India hate them. Don't, yeah, that's right. Them, they, so maybe, <laughs> and maybe, no mix it up, maybe mix it up. So maybe bring in like the SCG curator can then have his go on the, the pitch and then they can bring in the Gabba guy. He comes in for the third one and then the Wacker guy comes in and just throws dirt on it and makes it really bouncy and I imagine that they would have a number of pitches that they would use if that was the the case but you'd have to make it very different otherwise you're just going to have a very stale series. And make the toss very important if you're playing on a similar sort of wicket. Maybe they just time. could not touch the wicket from day one over the five tests so by fifth test you've got 25 days of dead grass. But hang on so they're doing this <laughs> so, so just so I'm getting this Correct. So they're doing this, let's see, because there's a hotel that's going to be built next to the Adelaide Oval. It's only a scenario at this point. If things are still happening with COVID, 
that is a possibility. So nothing is confirmed, of course, but it's just an idea that's been floating around at the moment. But who knows? Or maybe why don't they trial some different, why don't they trial like a four-day test or something? Try and and do, there has been talk of but then, that. But the then you're getting a little bit controversial and mm-hmm. people don't like it and the purists will clap their hands. And Jeez, well, if they bring yeah. in certain pitches, we'll definitely have four-day what tests. What about a test match, but they play it in colours? So they play in their colours. Can we bring the North Sydney jersey and they're going to wear North Sydney <laughs> <Yeah>. jersey? <laughs> we were discussing this beforehand and we also were discussing beforehand how in Eddie's second greatest moment, how Mark Nicholas slightly ruined the moment by saying, it's not yet a hat trick. And I know um, there's been a lot of talk about the commentators for the cricket at the moment too about the today's commentators as compared with days gone by, which is always fraught in cricket because Richie Benno is the benchmark. So you can't. Like Are you giving that. away your your number one already? No, I, I I told you last week I have no more cricket moments. No, but I mean, like if we do a countdown of commentators. Oh, mm, not necessarily. But the does the benchmark make it your favourite, or That's is it right. the quirky side of stuff, or a certain moment that they've done that you think no one could have done better? That's one of the things. Anyway, so we were just talking beforehand about how we like some of the lower key players who become commentators as compared, this is me personally, to Michael Clark, who I'm not a huge fan of. Because there's all these now rival factions and BBL, we're seeing some really different commentators pop up and people's opinions are pretty strong on that. Who's your favourite cricket commentator? <laughs> it's kind of bad, but uh, I think Warney does provide a very good outlook on the game when he's actually talking about the game. He, uh, his insight is very good when he's not talking about eating pizza for dinner and beer and stuff. <laughs> but I do also enjoy Michael Hussey's commentary. I think he's really, really knowledgeable on the game and he absolutely loves it. Mm. But also Ricky Ponting, I think, does a really good job at commentary because he's just got such a great cricket brain. So it's hard to narrow it down to one. Mm. What about Howie, Mark Howard? Did he play cricket at all? I mean, like in no. terms of BBL commentary. If, if we're taking BBL non-playing commentators, it's Andy Marr over Howie, sure. Andy. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have to, I mean, I know Kerry O'Keefe did play, but he's not regarded international? as a great player. I feel a bit disingenuous. Like Nasser Hussain hasn't even come up in commentary. Yeah. Jonathan Agnew. Yeah. Oh, Jonathan, Jonathan Agnew. Agnew. Love it. And then one week we're going to have to get into the um, umpires of the game because I was just reminiscing oh, about Steve Bucknell, surely. Oh, Dickie Bird. Thank you. very oh, Billy Bowden. Billy Bowden. Anyway. Billy Bowden. Let's move on to yeah. let's your number two greatest sporting moment of all time. Well, this one here, we go back to 2015 and I think you'll know it from the audio right here. Tackle five. This is the last. It's bounced away to Thurston. Comes up Blair. Got rid of Blair. Pushes away from McCulloch. Thurston gets the ball to Morgan. Morgan crosses the 20. Comes away to O'Neill. Gets the ball It's a try. Well, if you don't believe in fairy tales, we might see the giant fairy tale of all time. Here right now with Thurston, a kick from the sideline to win a premiership for the Cowboy. Can he do it? It looks to me as Owls taking the steel work. What else can this grand final provide? Wow. The most dramatic grand final that I can remember. So, from right to left, the Cowboys... Oh! oh Hunter's no. knocked on! The first grand final golden point. Thurston to choose from with Coote. He hits it, he's yes! got it! He's got the field goal! He's got the premiership! He has gone from a captain to a legend and probably rugby league immortality. The 2015 NRL Grand Final. Across to uh, Kyle Felt, who scored just inside the post. It's crazy to think that, like, one tackle changes that entire moment. Yeah, it's right at the end, which is my key moment, where Morgan's passing across to Felt, scoring a try right right at the end, just inside, then Thurston kicks 
hits the woodwork and you couldn't write a script better. Then we obviously went into extra time and uh, Ben Hunt. Mm, see, that's the ben drop. Hunt. That's the drop that defines, for me, I've never seen a more significant drop and his face. Oh. Never been the same. No, no never, I Never ever been the same no. after that. But for me, if that try didn't occur and the game wasn't drawn, it was average. It was mm, average. It wasn't a great game, I agree. It was average, but it was the fact that that sort of saved it and everyone goes, oh, oh Lord. It was a, a weird game. I had to watch it on replay. I was coming back from somewhere and was listening to it on the radio and I couldn't believe that on the last play of this incredibly average game that the Cowboys had managed to pull this from the fire. Mm. And then Thurston, of all people, you would you would say that nine times out of ten he would kick that. You've seen him do mm. it in Origin and the like. But as you said, let's see, for him to hit the woodwork, you couldn't have scripted it any better. And then, of course, Hunt drops. That was the most unlikely moment for me. I mean, hitting the woodwork was one thing, but the way Hunt just dropped that ball cold. It was oh. resignation. Mm. It was resignation and the fact that they knew that they had handed Jonathan Thurston the opportunity that he had needed yeah. to win them the game. Mm. That drop was literally dropping the game. Kind of similar to your moment last week, Jen, yeah. when... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if anyone actually said to him in that moment of, you know, you just dropped the final mate. I don't think Thurston would have done that. He wouldn't have felt confident enough to, but... No. It's too nice. Yeah. Never never confident until uh, the thing's over in a grand final. Heartbreak for the Broncos, but I guess a good story for the Cowboys because it was their first premiership in their, at that point, 20-year history, so... It is a great story for them, even though, even though, as you say, it was a bit of an average game, but great finish. Hey, Letsy, I've just realised something. You So, Letsy's a Queenslander, by the way. I thought you were a Broncos fan. Absolutely not. Melbourne. Thank God. Oh. Melbourne. How's that happen? It's all the Queenslanders anyways. How's that happen? Do you, do you like rotting salary caps and stuff? <laughs> well, I'm also a Carlton supporter, so I guess so. Yeah. Ah, that's probably it. <laughs> That's, that's probably it. It's Kevin Yep, that brought back memories. I'm going to go and watch that Ben Hunt drop because I have to say, you know how that's so I, I don't follow a team, but I do deeply dislike the Broncos. Might have to edit that out later on, but I do. So leave that, it in. <laughs> and so they're going to come for you. <laughs> well, I'm a bit scared. They're not going to let you run the league now, Jen. <laughs> no. oh, that's right. Oh damn it! Well, there we'll have goes. to edit it out. So let's see. That's your number two moment. We're going to move into our number two moment, friends of mine. And I think it's you first this time. I think it's me this time. Yeah. So I'm taking us back to 2005. Uh-huh. And he guesses... It's as... not bloody Nick Davis again. No, is, it, it's is, not... it N- is it NRL? Is it Tigers? No. Okay. No. No. Surprisingly, the, the West Tigers and Benji Marshall's flick don't make it. Oh. I'm taking us to the track. Yep. The race track. The first... Tuesday in November. The great diva herself. Yeah, you got it. Of course, completes the treble of the Melbourne Cup. No horse has been able to do it. It was the first time since, I think, 1975 when Think Big won with 58 and a half on the back that a horse had won with 58 kilos. No one, despite the fact that she did start favourite at, I think, about $3.60, all the experts said that it was too heavy. And even now, when you look at the way that the overseas Raiders have come and taken the, the cup, I just think that this moment and seeing Glenn Boss so triumphant on top of the diva and Lee Friedman, the trainer after the race, that it was the best horse that he'd ever trained and possibly the best horse ever. The fact that she had been able to to win the the three Melbourne Cups and straight away after the race she was retired. There was no Mm. thought of let's go for a fourth or let's try and and do something similar to what Winx did with four Cox plates after, after what had happened. But I think the biggest thing for me was it was sort of it was almost like the the rock star of racing and being a, only sort of 11 years old at the time and and sort of thinking this is crazy I had no comprehension of of gambling or anything like that back then your parents would ask you you know who do you think is going to win the Melbourne Cup and of course we'd go well Maccabi Davis is going to win the the Melbourne Cup but I I only 
thought that because she was such a superstar she'd won the two before I had no idea of how the the race would run and of course you'd race home from school and I remember the the times where they would let you out probably five minutes before the belt just so you could make the race and so you'd race home you'd get there and then they'd jump just as you got home we'd race from Fraser Primary all the way down to Dunlop and I swear dad didn't speed never sped and he didn't speed even though we were like come on we have to go what's the race <laughs> so get home and they jump and I still get it every single Melbourne Cup there's a, a knot that sits in my stomach because you just don't know how the race is is going to to run over the next sort of two and and three minutes of what can occur with 24 horses in the field every single year it happens there's something that happens we saw it with prince of penzance when Mm. michelle Payne Mm. rode the to victory but sort of 300 from home and you sort of know how long that flemington straight is and it's a bit strange because in the in the Cox Plate, the Mooney Valley race track, the sh- straight is only short where Flemington just seems to go on forever and you think, ah, oh, the horse is home. And I just remember seeing that these horses were coming at Maccabi and you're just like, no, no, surely this isn't going to happen. And she holds on and I just don't think that there's ever going to be a horse that matches it. Maybe, maybe, but Farlap won one Melbourne Cup. And some of the the greats have have come back the next year and just been absolutely absolutely smashed. But for her as a as a mare to do it in the in the manner that she did, she almost seemed to do it with so much ease. They sort of rounded the turn. I remember Boss got such a, a good position, sort of one out from the rail, and as they were sort of rounding the turn six hundred to go, sort of just found this opening. It was like she just popped up out of nowhere and just took off. And I've never seen a horse run that sort of distance and have that sort of turn of speed and I think that was the day that I sort of fell in love with racing more so not from a I know that it has that sort of stigma around gambling and people watch racing be to to gamble on it but for me racing has always been about the the animal and watching two of the great animals like race against one another or the rivalries in racing so for me to see a great horse and I've been fortunate enough to see Winks live. I never got to see Maccabi Diva live, but to see those great horses live, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be at Flemington that first Tuesday in November in 2005. Wow. I again got goosebumps. Are you a horse race fan as well, Ed? No. No? And what about you, Letsy? Yeah, I don't mind a little bit of horse racing. It's a funny thing to talk about with other people now because the, yep. a lot of the feelings mm-hmm. around it, but... The love of my dad's life is horse racing. So every Saturday of my life, when we'd be sitting down for lunch, dad would have the tranny to his ear and he'd be like, hold on, I've just got to catch race six at Flemington. And he'd be off to listen to it and he'd mark something down on his little piece of paper in his hand as to who'd won. And he's not a gambler, but he just loves horse racing. That's his whole life. Yeah, I think for me as well, my mum ran a tab in in Dixon and then my first job was working as a a tab putting the the results up. So I was 16 years old and I wasn't able to take bets because you're not allowed to till you're 18. And then when I was 18, then and of course, as part of your contract with the the tab, you can't bet while you're, you're working. So of course, you'd don't have any bets on throughout the day but you just you'd always have the the banter with the the punters mm. or you'd have your your typical old school punters come in with the newspaper and they'd read mm. the form and they go yep this horse is going to win this race and I used to love having a the conversations with the punters and sometimes I felt like I'd steer them away or or try and make them think differently because I go well yeah you've made that point but what about this horse it carried this much weight this time and I I just love all the the theoretical aspects of of horse racing and you you never really never really know who's going to to win the race I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about it is that it's sometimes the great horses find a way to win when they shouldn't yeah, and mm. the ones that have been really good, we've been fortunate in this era that we've lived in to see Winx and Maccabi Diva, two Black of the... Black Caviar. Black Caviar, three of the people greatest People forget horses. about Black Caviar as well. It's yeah. been, you know, I never thought there would be a time where people go, oh, they would forget about Black Caviar. And I think it's almost a little bit disingenuous as well. People compare, you know, Maccabi Diva, mm. Winx and, and Black Caviar, but they're all different horses over different lengths as well, so... 
one of those people that you just appreciate greatness when it's there and you get the opportunity to watch it and soak it in and there's going to be conversations with the Jordan documentary that's being released at the moment in segments but again just sit back watch it enjoy and appreciate greatness because you never know when that will be the last time you get to see that sort of yep well let's talk about my moment that happened on the 6th of July 2008 is it an Olymp? No, it's not an Olympic moment. It's pre-Olympic. Yeah. So we yeah. we have covered all manner of sports, but this is our first tennis moment. Ah. Oh. And I'm taking you to the Wimbledon final. Stoza. No. Men's no. final. Oh. And it's Rafa and it's Nadal. Federer. Yeah, I love Rafa. I love Rafa nearly as much as I love Steve. Nearly. Is this his? This is his first win this away was from his clay. First Wimbledon win. Yes. Yeah, so he'd already won a couple of French Opens. Federer had won five Wimbledons in a row. No one had won six in a row beforehand. Federer, was at this point, he'd been number one for 200-odd weeks, which was some sort of record anyway. And then the match went kind of like this. Rafa won the first two sets, 6-4, six, 6-4. Four, six, four. Federer won the third set, 7-6, seven, 7-5 six, seven, in the tiebreak. Federer won the fourth set, 10-8 in the tiebreak, so 7-6, 10-8 in the tiebreak. Federer saved two match points in the fourth set. In that entire game, I'll get to the fifth set in a moment, Federer only converted one break point on Rafa's serve. Winning the French Open and then Wimbledon, because they're such different surfaces, was never done. It was highly uncommon. And so going into that fifth set where Fed had come back from two sets down, it just looked like this was going to be another Federer win. And bear in mind, they'd already played two Wimbledon finals already, the last two, and Federer had won both of them. So there's a precedence. And you know how when you've got the same thing for Andy Murray and so many of those players who would get to the final and it was like the monkey on their back. If you come up against Federer, you're just not going to beat Federer at Wimbledon. So it gets to six all, seven all. And then when Federer's serving at 7-all, Federer loses that game. Rafa serves, and I don't want to say like that Federer turned the lights off or anything like that, but that game was the most straightforward serving game that Rafa had had, and they'd had the most amazing rallies in that game. So Rafa wins the fifth set 9-7 in four hours and 48 minutes. And for me... I know everyone calls Federer the greatest of all time, and I totally get that. I totally understand this, but you've got to look at Rafa as an entity in himself now too. He's now only one Grand Slam behind Federer, which is extraordinary. Like Federer's got 19 or 20, and Rafa's now at 18. And he's always been second fiddle. He's always been very modest about second fiddle. The two of them are good mates, but obviously highly competitive. So I was at work, and that game was on, and again, you can imagine how anxious I was as the time was going on and going on in this game. And I just didn't think Rafa was going to win. And I could not speak on air after Rafa won because I was so emotional because he'd finally cracked this hoodoo. And then they go to the Australian Open. So that's my moment. That game, I have never seen a better tennis game in my life. And then they go to the Australian Open and Rafa wins that too. And that's his first Australian Open as well. And that's the match, if you've ever seen afterwards, where Federer gets up afterwards and he bursts into tears on the podium. And he's trying to speak and he can't compose himself. So he gets down and it's not Labor, but whoever it is calls him up and Rafa accepts his award and whatever. And he hugs Federer and he says to Federer, I'm really sorry. And it's really touching because he actually is genuinely upset that he's upset Federer that much to make him. So Federer then comes up and says, no, I've got to finish what I've got to say because this is not my moment and I don't want to take his moment away from him. And it's just so emotional. So I'm going to be so saddened when the two of them retire because we will never see players like them again. Never. And the rivalry is so strong and the commitment, the standard of play is so high. In that game was so high. But that tennis match, that Wimbledon final 2008, is the best game of tennis ever. See, I've got an appreciation for Rafael Nadal because my old boss at the tab, Janie, she's a crazy Rafael Nadal fan. Like, we'll watch Rafa day in, day out and just could rattle off stats of Rafael Nadal without 
as so much as it's it's just there all the information is there for mine i always think back and i and i remember that because you you watch the australian open all the time mm. all the time as a as a kid because there's nothing really else on it's, it's just before the big bash. Yeah, 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 yeah it was before the bbl before the started <laughs> but I always think someone like Novak Djokovic, who might surpass both yep. these players, what he might have been like had he been born a couple of years earlier and had to to face Federer and Nadal at their their peak. Because admittedly, I don't think he's faced them at a time when they were at their their best. Although you you look at some of the reigns and. I think Eddie makes this point all the all the time is that you look at tennis and it's always been Federer, Djokovic and and Nadal. They're always Andy Murray, and occasionally yeah. Andy Murray, where the women's side just seems to fluctuate all all the time. And uh, it looks like someone like Coco Golf or someone like that will will come <laughs> in and and take over tennis yeah. at any moment. No but, one born in the nineties, as far as I'm aware, has won a men's singles grand slam title whereas in women's tennis if it hasn't happened already you're very close to someone born in the 2000s winning Mm. there's a whole sort of generation of men's tennis players that have been stuck behind the top four and it's interesting what you said about Wimbledon and the French Open and it being so hard to win both of them and it it is a bit similar to what we were talking about with cricket pitches isn't it where those two sports have such differences Mm. in surfaces and winning on clay is so different to winning on grass maybe a clay cricket pitch (laughs) (laughs) I guess they have them sometimes in India they do indeed I'll just read you a Rafa quote before I finish just because this man is a legend he was asked about when he was getting closer to Federer because he's always compared to him. And he was saying, you know, if you wanted to catch up to him to beat his record. And he said, you can't be frustrated all the time because the neighbour has a bigger house than you or a bigger TV or better garden. That's not the way I see life, you know. I just try to do things my way. I feel very lucky about all the things that are happening to me. And if at the end of my career I am able to win a couple more Grand Slams and be closer to Roger, it will still be unbelievable. If not, for me, still unbelievable. And I love the modesty of them too. So, yes, it's going to be a sad day. And this year, because they're both so close to the end of their career, not having French Open played, Wimbledon played, it's that's a Grand Slam missed for both of them. Well, the same for Serena yeah. Williams as well. And yeah. it's, it's quite amazing when you think of um, the Grand Slams, you think, like, for me, I think Novak Djokovic, Australian Open, I think of mm. Rafael Nadal, French Open and Federer Wimbledon. But, I mean, the US, that seems it's to... It's a bit more open, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a bit more open, and I don't know why that's the case. Mm, I don't either. And man, this has been a super, super long and powerful episode of Resporting. Thank you, everyone, for sharing with Eddie Williams, Brent Ford, Nathan Letts, and myself, Jen Saderhelm, while we've covered so many sports today. Join us again next week, where I'm sure a whole lot more sports will happen, and uh, we'll cover our number one Ooh. top sporting moment of all time.